You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. So we are going to be showing a screening of um, a film that I think you're really going to want to see, and I promise this is the last video this morning, but I want to show you a clip about about this uh, video that we're going to show because it also introduces the series that we're starting into this morning. So would you watch this with me as well? Family is crumbling and falling apart. We can see that everywhere we look. Broken family is everywhere. And that's why I'm going on this journey. To travel to the ends of the earth if necessary to find out what is wrong with the family. Attitudes about marriage have shifted dramatically since our parents were kids. Many are delaying marriage if they marry at all and choosing not to have children. Does this shift signal the end of family? Family is, uh, I I would say it's sort of the building block of civilization of culture. And our culture is so much about me and the individual. We should be encouraging a world where men and women embrace their roles as parents. The expectation that marriage is temporary, is disposable, has become a self-fulfilling prophecy. We live in a consumer society, and that has been translated into relationships. And when it comes to sexuality just being thrown around however we want, with whomever we want, whenever we want, it hasn't created the freedom that was promised. It's actually made a culture slaves. Boys need these models of manhood, of how to be a man, and they're losing out on that by not having their fathers involved in their lives. I don't know anyone that could have made more mistakes in life that I did. There is no place. I was so far. I've come so far in life only because I had so far to go. I set out on a journey to find out what's wrong with the family. I never realized how much of an impact it had on me. So this was the original movie trailer that was shown in May when this um, film was uh, first released. So the date on there that you saw is wrong. We are going to be showing it here at Grace on September 28th, which is a Sunday, and we're going to be doing it that night at 6.30. So we show this to you now so that you can just mentally file that date away. We'll let you know when it gets a little bit closer. But it really does introduce where we're going this morning as we start a new series. If you've been with us, you know that we've been going through the Gospel of John. We wrapped up that series last week, and now we start into a series in the fall on what we're titling The Modern Family. And for those of you who watch TV, you know that there's a a sitcom called The Modern Family, and I hear some of you chuckling. I've never, honestly, I've never seen the show myself, but I know about it, and I've certainly read a lot about it. And it really is indicative of what has been going on in our culture for decades that is now really reaching a culminating point. And that is that the family is being redefined. And the modern family is 
what's really being depicted as the modern family is moving further and further away from what scripture says the family is all about. So that's why we thought it was imperative that we dive into this series. But I want to give you a couple other reasons as to why, because it's a legitimate question. Why devote an entire sermon series to the family? Well, for starters, as we've talked about, the biblical family is being redefined and replaced by something else. And because of that, we want to go back to God's word. Because God's word is what brings clarity to confusion about relationships and confusion about what a biblical family is, how it works, how it functions, what it looks like. Because at the end of the day, from right thinking comes right living. If your values are misplaced, if your thinking is not biblical, your living will not be biblical. The other really reason to do this is because this is more than just an issue. It's, it's us. It's your family. It's, it's, these issues are confronting my family. Our, our friends are wrestling with them. Our coworkers, people we engage with and talk with at work and at school and on and on. So one of the outcomes that we're hoping from this sermon series is that you can be better equipped to work through these issues not only in your own life, but to engage and talk with other people in your life as well about what God's word says about relationships, about marriage, about family. So how are we going to do this series? Very carefully and very deliberately. We are going to speak the truth in love because Ephesians 4 tells us that one of the hallmarks of someone who is mature in Christ is this truth and this reality. They speak the truth in love and we always want to be about that but we especially want to be about that on this issue because these issues are personal right they are difficult and they're complex that there aren't some easy answers but there is a lot of direction however on how we are to live scripture is very clear about that and this series therefore is going to be very practical and very pastoral i hope all of our series would be that way but this one even more so and this is what this specifically is going to look like we're going to make this series deliberately interactive at the bottom of your sermon notes is a number for you to be able to text that is live as of right now you can text just not the whole sermon okay but text your questions your comments to us because the preaching team and I will be reviewing those on a weekly basis and we are going very deliberately to try to address those as this series rolls out and we're going to try to very deliberately steer into the questions and comments that you have and so there's also an email address there if you want to email us but either way it will get to us and there's there's the number and it's listed at the bottom of uh, of your sermon notes that being said This is also going to be a different type of series in terms of the format. Because of the complexity and the depth of the issues that we're steering into, we are very deliberately going to be bringing in more guest speakers than normal to join with our preaching team in walking through these issues together. Um, We're going to be having some discussion panels. In about three weeks, we'll have a discussion panel on marriage. So for those of you who are accustomed to coming and hearing a a 30 to 40-minute sermon, That's how we're usually going to roll, but there will be some times during this series we very deliberately will use a different form to work through the practicalities and the application of what God's Word is telling us to do. So we want to let you know about that, and that's going to culminate on November 30th when the preaching team and I are going to have an open Q&A with you, and we'll circle back around and address as many issues as we can that we did not get to 
um, in these months that are coming. So that's deliberately put there as kind of a bookend to this series, and then we'll go into a Christmas series. But here's an overview of what we're going to look at, and this is also listed in your sermon notes. We're going to look at marriage. We'll start that today, but we'll also circle back around to that in a couple months. Gary Thomas, who some of you know is a very prolific author and uh, speaker, he happens to be in town, and we were able to bend some arms and pull some strings, and he's going to come preach the next marriage sermon for us here in a couple months. That will be really, really great. We're going to steer into divorce and remarriage, singleness, blended families, equal marriage, homosexuality. We're going to, we're going to steer into all that stuff and see what Scripture has to say about that. So fasten your seatbelts and don't miss a Sunday here in the next several months because we're going to really cover some good ground. Finally, in 30 to 40 minutes, there is no way we can unpack all of the scriptural practical implications of these issues we're steering into so at the back every Sunday we're going to have a series of position papers that the leadership here have developed for you they're concise but they are pretty comprehensive in addressing biblically all of these issues we're going to look at and I want to call your attention to one that's back there for you this morning it's um, a position paper we've written on biblical marriage and wedding ceremonies so please make sure you pick up a copy of that and look that through because it will cover some ground that we don't get to this morning. So here we go. One of our last lists, I promise. <clears throat> there are some foundational key assumptions that you need to keep in mind as we dive into these, these topics. Okay, the first is this, that God is the one who is designed and gets to define our relationships. And that's a biggie. Because when it comes to family and when it comes to biblical marriage, biblical family, biblical relationships, we live in a culture that says, no, we get to define that. Our political process gets to define that. Our culture gets to define that. Referendum gets to define that. Sociology gets to define that. No, we believe as Jesus followers that God is the one who created the family. God is the one who created biblical marriage. God is the one who created relationships and therefore we're gonna look to see what he has to say and base our lives on that. That is very, very fundamental. Secondly, we believe and scripture explicitly teaches us that the biblical pattern of family and marriage is the most satisfying, fulfilling, joyful way to live. Do you believe that? Wow, that was really inspiring. <laughs> that validates exactly why we are doing this series. In three months, I want you to burst my eardrums with your amens, okay? Or yeah, because we believe that. I hope you believe that. And that tells me we've got some work to do right there. So we're going we're gonna to go there, all right? We're going to go there. Come on, come on. Finally, this is very fundamental too. You have to check what we say and most importantly, what you believe with God's word. Always, always, always. You go back to God's word and read it for yourself. The same Holy Spirit that lives in me, if you know Jesus, that lives in the preaching team, also lives in you. And you need to ground what you believe and how you live in God's word. Therefore, if you're newer to Grace, you may not know this, but on that back resource table, we have Bibles that are available for you. If you don't own a Bible, the people of this church want to give you one for free. Those are yours to have. Take a Bible, please, after this service if you do not own one. The very Bible that I preach from every Sunday morning I preach is one of those Bibles in the very back. It's what I use too. Now, if you want one that's leather, 
and that has maybe some different colors um, for the covers and maybe even has a name that you don't recognize, go to our Lost and Found and you can get a nicer Bible. <laughs> but, but, and that's not original. I stole that from Billy. He likes to say that. But we have a Bible for you if you want it. So, so please take one if you don't have one. So, why are we starting with biblical marriage this morning? Because there's a lot of confusion and misperceptions about marriage. Let's dismantle a couple of them right now. How many of you have heard, and you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have heard the statistic that 50% of all marriages end in divorce? That is categorically wrong, and that is statistically wrong. But it is a common percentage, a common statistic that is thrown around in our culture. There is a new series of studies out that actually validates the actual percentages, which are elusive and hard to nail down. It's called the good news about marriage. And what the research has validated is that 71% of women are still married to their first husband. That's statistically verified. And some of us might go, wait a minute, how's that work? Well, the other piece of that, which actually builds that, is the other, I'm not very good at math, 29%, I'm a pastor, give me a break, right? 29% doesn't necessarily mean they were divorced. Many of those ladies have lost their husbands, that they're widows. But we constantly hear this statistic, 50% of all marriages end in divorce. This is what we also hear, that most marriages are unhappy, that most marriages, really, the people are functional roommates. It is a marriage, it is a relationship of convenience. But they're not truly happy. Those are extremely rare. And again, that is statistically wrong. In the last 10 years, continually, over and over again in surveys, what marriage surveys have established is that 61 to 62% of all marriages at the time they were questioned said, we are very happy in our marriage. 61 to 62%. Not kind of happy, very happy. And if you want to go search that data out, you can Google it, but I got that directly from Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. Chapter 1. Go look, you can see all the studies that validate and support that. But if that is your perception of marriage, that most marriages are unhappy, half of them end in divorce, why in the world would anyone ever get married? We've been sold a bill of goods, if that's true, right? I mean, we really have. No wonder people are cynical about marriage. No wonder there are so many young adults who will not get married. They choose to live together, cohabitate, or not even get involved with that because relationships are just messy. They never work out. No one's happy. So why get involved with it? But that's a common perception in our culture, and it's not true. And it's not true of, of biblical marriage. The other reason we're starting with this is because what you believe about biblical marriage shapes everything else. A recent study that has come out has, has categorically underscored this. Meaning that if you do not have a biblical view of marriage, you will not have a biblical view of pornography, of cohabitation, of homosexuality, on down the list. So if what you and I believe about biblical marriage is biblically off, we are more than likely not going to be biblically centered on those other issues as well. So we have to start here. And finally, the Genesis marriage passages that we are about to look at right after this slide, I promise, are foundational for understanding 
relationships. We have to start in the book of beginnings because God is the one who designed and created relationships. And he is the one who designed and created biblical marriage. So we're gonna go all the way back to the very beginning, to the book of Genesis. So now, if you have a Bible, please open to Genesis chapter two. If you don't, I'll put it up here on the screen. This picks up after God has created the heavens and the earth. He's created the stars, the universe, the sun, the moon, plants, animals, and then it comes to this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable to him, or suitable for him. So, every time God creates in Genesis, for those of you who have read Genesis, what does he always say after he does something? It is good. It is good. It is good. It is good. Over and over again, this is the first and only time God says it is not good. And what is not good? That Adam is alone. What this tells us is one of the reasons why God created biblical marriage is that it meets a core relational need. Let's unpack this for a minute. Do we realize and appreciate what it is that we just read and what it means for biblical marriage? Because this is something that kind of sunk in with me as I was studying this passage. I'd never really grasped this before. Do you realize that God created Adam with a need that God directly could not meet? Do you realize that God created Adam with a relational deficit that God himself could not directly meet and God did that deliberately? Think with me for a minute. This is before Genesis 3 and what happens in Genesis 3? For those of you who know your Bibles, We call it the fall. That's when Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. They did eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And sin and death and destruction enter the world, right? This is before that happens. So everything is the way it should be. Everything is shalom, the way God created it to be. Peace, fulfillment. So the work that Adam is doing, is it good? Yes. Is it fulfilling? Yes. Is it satisfying? Yes. Is it enough for him? No. He's got animals all around him. He's not alone alone, right? I mean, there's plants, there's animals. You know, it makes me think of, you know, classic country western songs, and I'm gonna put my cards on the table with this one, where, you know, the guy's lost his wife, and he's lost his kids, and he's lost his house, and he, you know, just has the clothes on his back, but he still has his dog, you know, so he's okay, right? Dude, that's not reality. You're not okay. There is, and his horse, thank you. I left that one out. I'm sorry, Billy. I had to. I had to. I love you and I love Texas, but I don't love Western music. There you go. So there's a core relational need that biblical marriage meets. And so how does God meet this need? We jump down a little bit. But for God, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made 
a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, what is, what's that? Or the man said, you know, I've got my work. I'm pretty fulfilled. Or the man said, I've got my dog. You know, I'm okay, right? He did, what did he say? This is a song in the original language. It is poetry in Hebrew. And this is what he says. He breaks out in song and says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So shall she call be woman, for she was taken out of a man. He bursts forth in song. Ladies, pretty romantic, huh? Not bad. Husbands, take note. And for those of you who can't sing, just draw pictures, okay? Like me. But this is amazing, right? This is a, you know what Adam is basically saying there? If you begin looking at the meaning of that Hebrew word for, word for woman, it, it has this idea of sameness. She's just like me, but she's not like me. Basically, what he's saying is when he sees Eve, he says, mine. She's mine, and he breaks forth in song. I mean, it's incredibly beautiful and powerful because there is a need that God is meeting through the woman, a need that God created in him. You see, we were made for marriage, and marriage was made for us. We were made for relationships, made for marriage, made for kids, made for extended family, made for friends. God is relational. He makes us relational. But there's something very fundamental that we need to understand here, and that's this. And I very deliberately say this at every wedding that I get to officiate at. And I know that I think all of our pastors do the same thing, and it's this. If you are married, your spouse compliments you, but they do not complete you. Jesus Christ is the one who completes you. And sometimes we communicate to people who are single for whatever reason that they're somehow incomplete, that there's something wrong with them. And that's not true. And as one of your pastors, if we have ever communicated that inadvertently here at Grace, because we certainly don't believe it, I humbly ask your forgiveness. Because it's not true. Jesus Christ completes us, but a spouse does compliment us. And I was thinking about this with Jamie. What, how, what are the many, many ways that she compliments me? You know, and I could, I could give you several, but, but here's one. God, in his sense of humor, always seems to bring together, or oftentimes, in a husband and a spouse, one who is a pack rat, you know where this is going, and one who is a perjurer, right? I am the pack rat between the two of us. And pack rats are good stewards of what God blesses us with. And how this works, why are you laughing? How this works is like this. A good pack rat gets something and says, even if they don't need it at the moment, I may, I may need that someday. So they pack it away and they save it. And what happens when the day comes because of all the other things they've accumulated and they actually need that thing they packed away? What happens when that day comes and they go to look for it? They can't find it. So you go buy another one. <laughs> Amen. So then you come over here to our perjurer. And our perjurer says, have you used that in the last hour? Why is that in the garage? Why is that there in the junk drawer? Get rid of it. Right? 
no kidding. If you go out and you look in our van this morning, our van is full of stuff that's headed to Goodwill because my wife and I are going through some of our underneath storage in our garage and there are treasures that we're giving (laughs) to Goodwill because they need to be purged. And it's with great pain and gnashing of teeth that I will drive to Goodwill and get rid of those things. It just pains me. My wife compliments me. Your spouse was designed to compliment you. I compliment Jamie. I hide the things I don't want purged. (laughs) (laughs) Now that's not biblical marriage advice, okay? Let's just be be square on that one. I need to repent, but I do hide things that I want to keep. But our spouses compliment us. And very deliberately, so... And because our spouses compliment us, when we come together in biblical marriage, we make the triune God visible. Marriage makes God visible. And we jump back to Genesis chapter 1 to see how. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Now we could spend the rest of our time talking about what does it mean that we're made in the image of God. It's an incredible, unbelievable truth and reality. But in short form, it means that we have the character, creativity, and goodness of God. Now, a little disclaimer here. There are some things about God's character that are not transferable to us, right? I am not omnipresent. Although, I thought my mom was because she always knew when I was doing something wrong she had eyes in the back of her head but that's not true no one is omnipresent right but there are a lot of dynamics of God's character that are passed on to us holiness love truth righteousness mercy beauty the ability to create we create culture but we also create life together God blessed them and said be fruitful and increase in number Now, there are a number of you who understand this well because we have a full nursery and it continues to grow. And when we have kids, when a husband and a wife have kids, they are making God visible. Do you realize that? Now, I always wanted to be a husband and I always wanted to be a dad. And I remember when Jamie and I were in premarital counseling with our pastor, and she said the same thing. I always have wanted to be a wife. I've always wanted to to have kids. I think most days she wants to be my wife. But, you know, that's always been a a core desire for both of us. But I remember our pastor saying, so you do want to have kids? Yeah, we do. And he said, man, I'm so glad to hear that. And he said, because I'm, I'm very disturbed about something I see happening in our culture. And remember, Jamie and I got married 23 years ago, so this is a couple decades ago. We're having this conversation with our pastor. He said, something's happening in our culture that's profoundly disturbing to me. Because, you know, there are good reasons to, to choose not to have kids, but there are people who are choosing not to have kids because they're too expensive. Because they take too much time. Because they interfere with their careers because they interfere with the lifestyle that they want to lead. And he said, that's profoundly disturbing to me because it's selfish. And that is a dynamic that we see growing in our culture. 
is that people choose not to have kids for the wrong reasons, for selfish reasons. You know, on the other side of that, that desire to have kids is, is, is a God-given desire. And, and there are some of you who want to have kids, and, and I hurt for you because for whatever reason you can't. And that's a legitimate desire that you have. And I know that's painful. And there are some of you who really want to get married. And again, that is a God-given desire. And for whatever reason, you're not married. And, and that is painful. And it's a reality. And I, and I get that. But, but those are legitimate desires. Because it, it's how we make God visible. It doesn't mean we're incomplete because Christ makes us complete as we've talked about, but those are legitimate di- desires to want to be married, to want to have kids. But biblical marriage also reflects the oneness of God. And this is, this is huge. This is hugely foundational. Look what Genesis 2 goes on to say. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. This is talking, more, this is talking about more than just sex although that's part of the equation. But there, there is a much deeper connectedness here than just sexual expression between a husband and a wife. Look what Deuteronomy 6 says. This is called the Shema. And that word means hear, the hearing. And this is what faithful Jews to this day still recite every single day. It's this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Same Hebrew word, that's in Genesis 2 to describe the oneness between a husband and a wife. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. This is where we get the greatest commandment that Jesus amplifies for us in the New Testament. This is what Jesus is referring to when he talks about what's the greatest commandment. Here it is. But that oneness is is the same, it's the same word. And Paul calls this a mystery, and it really is a mystery because the longer a husband and a wife are together, the more they become one. One of the most powerful illustrations of this that I saw was years and years ago. It was a guy at my previous church. He and his wife had been married for many years. It, It really was, it was tragic. She got cancer. She died from that. They had little kids. But I remember in the eulogy that was read on his behalf about his wife, he said, you know, my wife is, is part of who I am. We share the same mannerisms, the same cliches, the same values. And he described this incredible oneness that I've never forgotten because it's the type of oneness that's talked about here in Scripture. You know, this may be scary for some of you, but you probably will end up looking like your spouse. I don't know why that happens, but it's part of that oneness process. I, I, I don't understand that, but, it, but, but somehow it happens, and it's, it's significant. And when a bride and a groom in Christian biblical marriage stand before their family and their friends and their community and they get married, when that happens, we're seeing God on display because there's a oneness there that's being declared and it's the oneness of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Worship team, five slides. Three persons yet one, one God. It's just this amazing truth. And in all this we've looked at, then Genesis 3 happens. 
And as we talked about previously, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve decide that they're going to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, much like we see our culture doing today, functionally. Because what our culture says is, God, you don't define what's good, and you don't define what's evil. We do. And that's what Adam and Eve do. And then death and sin and destruction enter the world. Very practically speaking, from here, every other form of sexual expression outside of biblical marriage, outside of a covenantal, lifelong, exclusive commitment between a husband and a wife is sinful and biblically wrong. Because every other form of sexual expression out of this is a result of the fall and the brokenness and destruction of sin. Let's take this for a test drive. So biblical marriage reflects the oneness of God. It reflects also our relationship to God, right? As his bride. So what does polygamy say? Having multiple spouses. It says that God has multiple wives, Does Scripture teach that? No. Scripture says God has one wife, one bride, who he is exclusively, covenantally committed to. Okay, well, let's think about living together. What does living together say? That God shacks up with his girlfriend, the church, to see if it's going to work out before he'll make a commitment to her. Is that what Scripture says? But that's what that form of sexual expression says. Or what about friends with benefits. So God takes advantage physically of his girlfriend, his bride, the church, in order to satisfy his needs and get what he wants. Is that how God interacts with his bride and treats her? No. Or two men who get married, or two women who get married, what does that declare about God? That God is only male? with the two men or that God is only female with the two women aren't both men and women made in the image of God yes men and women are made in the image of God you see where this goes and how practical this gets biblical marriage reflects the oneness of God and every other form of sexual expression out of that is declaring a false gospel it's a false gospel And I know that's not politically correct, especially in our culture, but it is the biblical truth. And it has profound implications for us because biblical marriage is designed to shape us to be more like Jesus. Do you want to know how selfish you really are? Get married. Do you want to know how giving you can be? Get married. Do you want to experience some of the most difficult things you'll ever go through? Get married. Do you want to experience some of the greatest joy that you will find in no other relationship on earth? Get married. God uses all those experiences to shape us and to make us to be more like him. If we'll let him. But you don't have to be married in order to experience oneness with God this is one of my most favorite passages in scripture you've heard it before we looked at it in the John series this is this is it John 17 3 now this is eternal life that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent 
That word for know is a growing, progressive, intimate knowledge of another person. This word is only used in this form to describe a relationship between a husband and a wife. That is the kind of intimacy that God wants with me and with you. And once again, to circle back around to what we started with is one of our primary core values, assumptions, biblical truths is this. Jesus said that he wanted us to have life and to have it to the fullest. When we live life God's way, when we live relationships biblically, there is joy, there is satisfaction, there is fulfillment that you will find in no other way, shape, or form. So even if you are not married this morning, this has application for you. Are you living biblically in the relationships in your life, not just with your spouse, with your kids, with your friends, with your coworkers, with your neighbors? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Because if you will choose to do those things God's way, you will find a fulfillment and a contentment you're not going to find anyplace else. And some of us might say, well, I don't know if I believe that. Yeah, exactly. You just put your finger on the problem. You don't believe it. And that's why you don't experience it. And that's why I don't experience it at times, as I don't believe it. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.